Welcome to Kitchen Table, candid conversations about sex, relationships, and being human. I'm Brittany Palacastro. I'm Nick Antony, and today we're talking to Davey Ward Erickson about racial healing and pleasure. Hello, Nicholas. Hey, Brent. I called you your full name, and you called me my half name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't say each other's names that often. We never say each other's names. Mm-mm. Sometimes when I'm mad at you, I say your name. Nicholas. I don't never call you Nicholas. <laughs> I don't ever, except just now, just for fun. But no, we call each other. So should we share some of the names we call you? Sure, why not? So our main one is Darling. But then what else? Core. Uh, That's our core. Schmugglums. Schmomb. Schmomb has definitely like rested in my heart. Yeah. We might not reveal the complete iteration of it, but just like give you a little taste is Moshe Bud. I don't know where or how that originated. I I was just thinking about that this morning. No idea. Like, how did that come about? Moshe Bud, M O S H I. So, like, Moshe, like that little delicious treat. And then Bud, B U D. Moshe Moshe Bud. Moshe Moshe Bud. We say it like 50 times a day. Say so much. It's so strange. <laughs> and we'll text it. Or if we haven't seen each other, if we're like away or this weekend, we were with partners, our partners. Mm-hmm. It's like our call to each other. Moshe, Moshe, bud. I'm always pleasantly surprised when you leave notes that, that, that spell that out. And your most, most recent, you've been doing customized emojis that say Moshe, bud. And I have. I've been like, yo, I'm saving that shit. I <laughs> felt very proud of myself <laughs> for for that. But yeah, it's good to have special names. I remember when I was younger, I had a friend who either her and her boyfriend or like her friend, somebody called each other Fred one and Fred two. Fred, where's that from? I don't know. Is it from something? And no one had like, no one's name was Fred. It feels like that's from something. I don't know. I just thought it was so funny. It stayed with me. This was like 20 years ago. Yeah. I never had any nicknames. No. As a kid growing up, no. It's always been like Nick. Like, yeah, I don't recall any. But like, I don't know. I'm foggy on my entire uh, childhood experience in terms of school and in high school. Yeah, that's a blur for sure for me. My dad called me or Gucci. Gucci? But not like Gucci. Not that kind of Gucci. It almost feels like a Top Gun reference or something, like a pilot. <laughs> Come on, Gucci. We got to fly this plane. I totally, I could feel it being spoken like that. No, it was more like Gucci. Like, like cute. I'm like, I was trying to like phrase You're trying to phrase it. You're like, no, it that doesn't feel right. <laughs> it doesn't feel right. I'm not going to try. I, that's your papa's. So I'm not going to try that. So we're about to talk to Davy Ward Erickson. Super excited. She is one of my teachers. You've spoken about her often and frequently, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, having a direct dialogue with her. I know. I'm excited for you to meet her. Get ready. We're going to dive into the deep places. I have a feeling. Bring it. Bring it. Welcome to Kitchen Table. I'm Brittany. I'm Nick. And today we are talking to what I believe is a very special guest, yeah. Davy Ward Erickson. Davy is the founder of the Institute of Authentic Tantra Education, which I have studied with, <laughs> the first and only government accredited professional training institute using the Tibetan Five Element Tantric Practices for holistic sexual healing. Davy is an ACS certified sexologist, tantric healer, certified Reiki practitioner, meditation instructor, and has been teaching meditation and personal growth workshops for over 20 years. Davy is also an author and the host of the amazing Sex is Medicine podcast. And she's been featured on as a tantric expert 
in countless articles over 30 different radio and television networks worldwide. And Davy was awarded the 2021 ASECT Live Web Series Award and was most recently featured on VH1 Couples Retreat and in Ebony Magazine looking so fierce and beautiful. (laughs) Welcome, Davy. Yay, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. We are so happy to be here with you and to dive into what I believe is going to be a really powerful conversation. Let's get to it. So first, that's a really badass bio. (laughs) You know, I know some things and I know you've lived a really full life in the span of what you've connected to. And so I think it's really interesting. Can you just give us a little information first, just of your journey? Kind of like, you know, not too long, but where you started and where you are now? Yeah, yeah, that's a really wonderful starting place. So I came into this world <laughs> once upon a time. Small child. <laughs> So I was born in 1974, and and that's important because keeping in mind that that interracial uh, marriage just became legal in 1969. Wild. And my parents, my white, Polish, and Czechoslovakian mother and my African-American father, uh, African-American father hightailed it to get married. Uh, As soon as it became legal, they were like, yes, let's put our stamp of approval on this. And then a few years later, they had me. And so I say this so that people understand the cultural and social climate that I was born into. Six years previously, I was illegal. My legitimate birth was illegal. Of course, there were mulatto people or mixed people before me. But in terms of it being under a government-sanctioned union, my life was literally illegal according to American law up until, you know, 1969. And so we know that society, the thought of society doesn't change that quickly. So I was born into a very segregated and racist world, the product of a interracial relationship. And so my early childhood was very much marked by what I call racial violence, calling people like five-year-old kids racial slurs is violence. And my father, as a result of experiencing horrific racism his entire life, like almost every person of color in North America, suffered from some pretty serious mental health issues. And so I was raised in an environment of domestic violence. So my parents split up, went to go live with my white single mom in white single upper middle class utopia, <laughs> so to speak. And in that environment, experienced some of the most, you know, again, virulent racial abuse I had ever been exposed to. I went from a pretty protected environment. I went to like, I started at Rutgers prep school and started, you know, my early childhood at Montessori. And so I had this, you know, privilege and my parents were upwardly mobile and all of that. So I went from that into the public school system where I also was going to school with the son of the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan at certain stages of my life. And so that I say this because it shaped my self-identity. It shaped my relationship to my body. It shaped my relationship to my heritage. And it shaped my relationship to my sexuality, being told from the time I was five or six years old that my Blackness made me not only in undesirable and ugly, but also inhuman. So needless to say, I guess why I shouldn't say needless to say. So I grew up and I had a lot of trauma. I had other traumas. You know, my father was physically abusive. When I was about 13 years old, he, we had an incident where he almost killed me, almost strangled me. And obviously that was a a massive trauma. From that point, I became suicidal, which is very normal for (laughs) survivors of trauma to want to no longer experience that level of pain. 
And when I was about 19 or 20 years old, I had a very serious suicide attempt where I obviously didn't take my life. I tried. <laughs> I actively tried. It was the most serious attempt that I had had up to that point. I drew blood. And I referenced that because that was the beginning of the transition of my journey. Up until that point, I was overwhelmed by hopelessness, despair, my own internal agony. Like thinking back to that time in my life, like just breathing was agonizing. Just like there was no ending to the underlying suffering, mental anguish, emotional anguish, suffering that I experienced every waking moment. There was no respite from it and there was no relief from it. Hence my, you know, desire to find relief through suicide. But that being a serious attempt confronted me with my desire to live and my desire to live free of pain. And so that began me actively pursuing a path of spiritual liberation, a path of personal liberation, liberation from my suffering. And I was willing to try fucking anything. <laughs> anything. And so this was like 1993, 1994, like the new age movement was just kind of, you know, cresting or starting to, you know, manifest more clearly in mainstream society. And so I did everything I could get my hands on. I became certified in Reiki. I was a crystal healing practitioner. I studied herbs. I studied, you know, different energy healing modalities. i made candles, ritual candles. I studied Wicca. I did spells. Yes. <laughs> you were ready. You were yeah. ready. You're like, I am getting into this magic. I'm going to heal myself. Give me yeah, all exactly. things. Everything that I thought could potentially help, I just did it all. And I did lots of uh, acid and lots of ecstasy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, at the time, at uh, this time in like the early 90s, I was a stripper in Detroit. So uh, in, in Detroit at that time, we were topless, not bottomless. I like to make that caveat because that's full nude was not a thing in Detroit at the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> but yeah, I was a stripper for three years in the industry. I was a raver. That's where I did my acid and my ecstasy. And it was kind of, I, I refer to it as like unsupervised journeys using shamanistic, you know, methods, unsupervised shamanistic journeys. You know, when I think back, it was like, I was just determined. I knew that there was something on the other side of this pain and suffering. I just intuitively knew that. And I was willing to do whatever I could or needed to, to break through the pain, to get to the bliss. I was determined. And so that led me on my journey from being a stripper in Detroit. I made my way to Hawaii where I encountered uh, the Ashaya's Ascension Meditation. And as soon as I encountered this, I devoted my life to being a monk and committed my life to spiritual awakening. And so I moved to North Carolina and went to monk training school. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing monk training school? It's a lot of quiet. You are quiet. <laughs> Yeah, we meditated for 16 hours a day at certain portions of my training. 16 hours a day. Whoa. 16 hours a day at wow. certain portions of my training. So the minimum amount of uh, meditation hours we did uh, each day was about, it was about six. We were expected to meditate for two hours in the morning. I was doing a work trade program. So I was working on the grounds for six hours. Then we meditate for two hours before dinner and then two hours before bed. So like the minimum recommended daily allowance of meditation was about six hours. But when I was actively in the training portion, it was 16 hours a day for six months. All we did. I could easily see someone hearing that and 
getting immediately uncomfortable (laughs) with the idea of sitting for that amount of time. I'm sure your shit came up. Like people a hundred percent in terms of like, you know, meditation in general, people definitely are are afraid of their inability to sit still and be Mm -hmm. with their thoughts in any capacity. And like the idea of meditation in some people is just, does my brain have to be completely blank for this in order for it to work? And it's just like, no, you sit and be with all that shit. Just be with it. Just be with it. Well, it's horrifying. Yeah. And if you don't have a technique, so that's the thing about meditation is it's a simply a shift in focus. So most of the time we're focusing on our thoughts and all of that internal dialogue and our, you know, shitty self commentary and all that stuff that goes on. That's what we're normally focused on. With meditation, we're simply shifting our point of focus to a mantra or an object or a, you know, a shape or a, a, you know, or a, a visualization breath. Or, or a breath. Yeah, exactly. So we're simply shifting the point of focus. And so initially there's a lot of back and forth, but eventually the mind becomes very comfortable and accustomed to resting. And then you can just really witness and watch the thoughts go by without attaching to them. But that happens over time. So in the case of the Ashaya's uh, Ascension Meditation, we had a mantra that we used to shift focus. So anytime I would notice that the thoughts were arising, I would simply put my attention on this mantra and let the mantra kind of soothe the mind, and then the thoughts would kind of be stimulated, and then I would just put my attention on the mantra. So it's a very similar process to what I do now, just the point of focus is different. It takes a lot to get to the point where you're willing to just be present, first with yourself, and then with your infinite, ultimate nature for that amount of time. It's it's a commitment in life that you make, and that I made at that time. And it prepared me very well for applying and adding the tantra to it later. If I didn't have a decade of monk being a monk... And learning how to shift my attention and be present with my own suffering, ultimately, there's no way I could have taken on Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. (laughs) No joke. (laughs) It is the real deal. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Nick has witnessed my own personal journey with it. I've seen it. I've seen it and I've been like, there's nothing I can do in this moment. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, it comes out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's where you are now. Just talk a little bit about, you know, what the authentic Tantra Institute is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if I may circle back, I'll just to give you guys like a, some context. So I was introduced to Tibetan Five Element Tantra in 2009. I was introduced to the non-sexual application and then later the sexual application of the methods. And so I trained uh, in this umbrella of formal training. So in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, when consorts, which are tantric sexual partners, are going to train together, you get the Lama's permission and approval and you have a set period of time that you're going to do it and you have this practice schedule. I don't know if that's true in every tantric Buddhist tradition, but I'll say that's what went down on Kauai with Lama yeah. Tashi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now Dries. <laughs> so that's what we did. So I entered into a six-month period of formal training into the application of Tibetan Five Element and other Vajrayana uh, tantric practices for the purpose of sexual and spiritual realization. Outside of this, I was also cultivating my non-sexual application of Tibetan tantric Buddhist practices. And so I say this so that people understand, like, there are some sexual yoga practices in the Tibetan tantric lineage that you can only do with a lama's permission after having accomplished several non-sexual Tibetan Buddhist meditation practices. And so that's how my training unfolded. I worked with the five elements primarily until I had developed the capacity to receive and practice in some of the higher, you know, tantric sexual yoga methods. So I like to make that distinction because in neo-tantra or Western tantra, there's just this assumption that everyone can practice tantra. 
on one level, yes, that's true. If you have the methods that are accessible for lay people, but some of what the classical Tantra people talk about, like needing initiations and ritual and that sort of thing, that is true too. But that happens under with the guidance and the permission of a Lama. And I did go through those whatever gauntlets, <laughs> so call them, to get to the, the point where I could practice the higher sexual Tantra. So anyway, I just wanted to let people know where my initiation, so to speak, in Tantra began. It began in 2009. So since then, I have established, as we said, the first and only government accredited school for tantric sexual healing as far as in the world, certainly the only one in the world using the Tibetan five element tantric practices for holistic sexual healing. We're also accredited with the American College of Sexologists International and just got a notification this morning that we've been accepted into the International Institute for Complementary Therapists so that we can offer membership and uh, insurance to the graduates of our certification training program. So I've been racking up those credentials in the meantime. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's wonderful. That's amazing. And you know, it's what you do and, and the Institute, what I love about it is that it's lineage based (laughs) and there's a lot of respect and reverence to the roots. And I think that's really important when we're working with very, very deep medicine such as this. And a lot of times in my experience, we'll just speak about my experience, (laughs) in my experience with spiritual communities, because I've been in spiritual world for about 18 years now, there's a lot of kind of muddiness in that world. There's also, in my experience, a lot of whiteness. There's a lot of white dominated communities and, you know, Davey, you have carved a really intentional path and created an entire institute and that allows, you know, this beautiful community of diverse individuals that are committed to healing and to committed to their personal growth and to, you know, committed to the authentic practice of Tantra. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about how you did that and how your experience as a Black woman has been affected by being in these, these white spaces and going through this process that you've talked about already. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I will say that when I'm talking about my experience as a biracial Black woman with very light skin, I say this because my experience navigating these realms, the color of my skin is going to elicit different responses than a darker skinned Black person. So I want to acknowledge that. Absolutely. Uh, colorism exists. It's for real. And and what I find is colorism in terms of, of how white people respond to us in the implicit bias, that's what I'm referring to specifically. Also, I was raised by a white mother in white society. So I'm very white presenting. And my brain has been wired with white supremacy. <laughs> It's dripping from everywhere. Like, period. Like, no one's being left untouched by that shit, like, at all. Yes, yes, exactly. It's all pervasive in our society. The entire society is rooted in white supremacy. So a disadvantage I feel that I had is because of my parents splitting is that I didn't have, I had all of this, you know, whiteness with my mother and my school and my peers, but I didn't have the contrast of the blackness from my father because he was absent. And because I didn't have a black granny because she died. 
And there wasn't this like black family to counterbalance the imprint of this whiteness or the sea of whiteness that I was swimming in. So I didn't have this counterbalance. And I've, I've come to understand that as a, as a detriment throughout life. So in terms of speaking about my journey through these new age and, you know, white communities through the years, I would say that probably until about 2000, you know, 14, 15, even I was just swimming in a sea of blindness. I was so accustomed to experiencing the microaggressions. I was so accustomed to experience that I didn't recognize what it was. I didn't have a language for it. I was illiterate in the nuances of it. So I would feel it in my body and I would feel this rage. But I believe that I was an angry black woman. I believe the whole, you know, white supremacist, you know, view of black women and the pain that we feel and carry and express, you know, the righteous pain. I believed that I was crazy and it was my fault and not devoured, but I just absorbed and consumed these microaggressions and this, what I would call violence. Now, I didn't understand it as violence at the time. So I just swam in the sea and I just believed that I was the one who was fucked up. Yeah, not the case. <laughs> it's important to pause for a second with that and for other people listening to this to hear that. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. That that can happen. It <laughs> does happen. Yeah. I could feel those effects in terms of my upbringing. And like my dating history, like there and I'm, and the older I get, the better I am at observing those things and being able to call that out and being like, what is this? How is this existing? And then trying to shift that energy to something else. But uh, it takes a long time to unlearn what we are culturally conditioned to think is like the norm. I feel that in my body for sure. It's a continual unpacking and just uh, rebalancing and just finding a better way, essentially. Yeah. It's our neurological wiring. Like it's literally, our cultural conditioning is literally wired into our brain and our nervous system. It's a physiological issue. We can't psychologically think ourselves out of it. We have to dismantle it. <laughs> yes, intellectually and consciously, but on the level of the body, right? Which is why the methods, you know, the somatic healing practices that we do are so effective and so uh, necessary in this journey of deconstructing our own internalized racial oppression. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about that? Just about what that looks like? You mean the, the dismantling of our internalized racial oppression? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know. No big deal. And it will sum up the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, the quick and dirty version. <laughs> No, you can get it if you want to. <laughs> what I'll say again, I'm going to speak from my perspective and, and I see my perspective reflected in my students and, you know, many people. So I know it's not just about me, but I also want to be authentic and say that this has been my journey. And so I'm not speaking from this like scholarly or academic perspective with like statistics and that shit. I'm very much speaking from the bottom up. And so my experience of dismantling, actively dismantling my own internalized racial oppression, I would say started, I would say around 2014, 2015. Obviously, I was aware of it before, but I didn't know that this was actually a thing. <laughs> it's actually like, wow, okay. And that you can like learn about this and that there's a whole field of study about this. I'm like, wow, I didn't know that until about 2014, 2015, when somehow I encountered the article White Fragility which was Robin D'Angelo's first paper that she published way back. And I remember reading this PDF and I was like, holy fucking shit, this explains my life. I've been gaslit 
by white people my whole life. And it made so much sense, the underlying sense of discomfort that I had. And like, I just come back from this event in LA by this big sex educator thing, whatever. And everybody at the event was white, like me, that was it. And I remember feeling so uncomfortable in the space. And so like, you know, like they had this panel of, of all these, you know, glossy white sex educators who were talking about like what human sexuality is really about. And there was not one person of color there. And I remember thinking, wow, like, okay, so that's what sexuality is about for you. But I didn't hear myself being spoken about. I didn't hear about like, well, what is sexually about is sexuality about when you've been told that you're ugly for being black since you were five years old? Like, how do you feel sexy then, right? Like, how do you reclaim your sexual identity in a world when every white boy you dated said that he would never marry you because you were a Negro, you know, whatever, censor that if you need to. But like, those were the things that were said to me. They didn't hold back. These Michigan KKK people, they let me know straight out how what they thought I was and how they thought about me. So in terms of this event, this very white event, and this is just, you know, the one that I remember going to like right before I read this paper that kind of connected all the dots and made it make so much sense for me. At this event, I remember, yeah, just feeling so unrepresented. And so like, how dare you speak for me when you haven't experienced a fraction of what I've gone through in my life. And I also remember, you know, before reading this paper, White Fragility, I remember feeling so frustrated in the field at how it seemed to me that white women in this field were so celebrated, they were so supported, they were loved. And I would say the same thing and I would get shunned, I would get ostracized, I would get all this negative feedback, I would get all these trolls. And yet this white woman got praise and a million followers. It was devastating. And I didn't understand what I was struggling with. That's the thing I think about like internalized racial oppression. We as people of color struggle with it every day. But for most of my life, I didn't understand what I was struggling with. And so I just thought it was crazy. I just thought the problem was me. So finding out that the problem isn't me personally, that it's the system of oppression that we all live in and the system of oppression that I was encountering obstacles based on the system of oppression, not as a reflection of my efficacy or my potency, but because of the system of oppression and because and tracing how that system of oppression led to, you know, financial inequities, financial hardships, inability to navigate these systems of white supremacy. I find them overwhelming. Like I couldn't have done any of this fucking accreditation if I didn't have white people on my team. <laughs> but no one navigate that shit. That's me. I'm just like, I don't want to talk to government nobody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Keep them out of my business. (laughs) So yeah, anyways, lots of dots to connect. I I tend to tell stories in a very circular way. So if you're looking for bullet points, you're not going to get them. No, no, no. This is (laughs) is perfect. This is great. This is amazing. Yeah. So in 2015, again, I was aware of this before and I dipped in it. But in 2015, it really, with that paper, I was like, oh shit, this is a whole system. Like people study this. So Robin D'Angelo cited many black authors that she resourced from. And so I dove into those black authors and they started teaching me about my blackness and not just the trauma and the pain and the wounding of my blackness, but the power of my blackness and how, yes, we may carry the legacy of trauma in our DNA, but we also carry the legacy of our potency and our power and everything that's allowed us to survive 400 years of dehumanization on this continent. We carry all of that in our DNA as well. And so I was able to connect with at the same time as understanding my pain as a person of color, I was able to begin really understanding and accessing my power as a person of color as well. Only within the last few years 
the magnitude of the fact that I exist in this body in that I am an embodiment of an idea that my ancestors had no bearing of, even though we're still fighting through these things, but still. And also the fact that even in the pits and the sadness that cope us culturally, like we still like affected the overall like American culture and like and then a dope stuff. And in that same space, we're still fly as hell. Like we still did these things in the face of all this stuff. And like we're still here. The fact that we survived any of that, it blows my mind. Every single time I think about it, if I'm meditating, I'm just like, I'm always thinking of my ancestors and like living in that space and being like, whew, we went through some shit. And I'm here to basically try to do my best to heal as best I possibly can in the face of all this stuff. And it's just, uh, there's a lot to unpack. And there's so much unchecked trauma across the board, white and black. It's just like, and people don't want to deal with it. They don't want to face that head on. And they're more concerned with the idea, I don't want my child to be uncomfortable talking about these things. It's just like, are, do you hear yourself? You don't want your child to be uncomfortable with the idea of like, you know, just like learning about the truth of like what occurred in this in this land, the land we stand on. Just, yeah, takes my breath away sometimes. It really does. The power in that. Yeah. And so, you know, what you're saying, Nick, in terms of, you know, the fact that we've been able to survive, I'm going to say the fact that we've been able to thrive. Yes. Like, yes. Thrive. Yes. In spite, imagine what we could do without this. If we have been able to not just survive in, with this literal boot on our necks, literal and figurative, every way, like from, we don't get a break. And it's not even like from the moment we're born, dude, our parents didn't get a break. And our great grandparents, like nobody for the past 400 years has gotten a fucking break. Nobody gets a break. And so if, if with all of that intact, we're able to not only survive, but produce magnificence, produce art, produce fucking the blues and, and so much. art and poetry and invention, the first government accredited school for tantric sexual healing. If we're able oh, to yeah. do that, yeah. in spite of, imagine what we can do when all of that trauma is dissolved. All of that ancestral shit is dissolved and our power is awakened. And that's what we're doing here at the Institute of Authentic Tantra Education. Because those five element teachings, circling back to what you were asking for, Brittany, those five element teachings give us access to the codes, to the wisdom, to the power, to the knowledge encoded in our DNA. And they work to dissolve the imprint of trauma, the generational imprint of trauma from the cells themselves, from the DNA themselves. That is the power of lineage-based energy medicine. It heals on the molecular level. It heals on the level of consciousness itself. So we're weaving these five element teachings from the Shankbakagyu tradition, which was started by a black woman, hello, and passed down to us for the people, weaving <laughs> 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 these five element teachings with science-based somatic sexual healing methods and somatic methods in general, somatic meaning body-based. So working with the genitals, with touch, breath, and awareness, working with movement, breath, and awareness, working with the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve to catalyze transformation and healing and the release, the dissolution and the release of the imprint of trauma that we have carried, not just from this lifetime, but that we carry for our ancestors as well. That's what we're doing at the Institute. Made my chest go up, but I was just like, mm -hmm. I won't put my, my chest out and put my hands on my hips and just be like, yeah. <laughs> And he's doing it, you guys. He's and doing I'm, it. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> like superhero style. Like straight up. Straight up. <laughs> like, I love that. I love it. I love it. 
So Nick, you said something and I, I wanted to circle back to just around the idea of people don't want to do it. They don't want to face it. They don't want to be with that. Nope. Um, and whenever I think about that, because it is true, I think about the nervous system as the reason, right? Davey, can you talk about that a little bit? What I mean by that? Yeah. I mean, of course it's overwhelming. If you don't have a tool, I would never recommend that you try and confront your trauma and your wounding and all your discomfort with no tools and no support. I was not even trying to heal that shit. I was overwhelmed by it. Tried to kill myself. (laughs) I would never recommend trying to dive into that stuff with no support. That's a recipe for disaster. So, you know, again, I get it. Mainstream society is so like, take a pill so that you don't have to feel, right? And the whole process of somatic healing and and authentic healing is you got to feel it to heal it. Trauma goes out the way it goes in. Illness goes out the way it goes in including mental and emotional, you know, dysfunctions that are a result of trauma. And so it takes courage, but beyond courage, it takes support. It really takes support. That is so essential. And so it's unfair to expect like this society of individual people that are, you know, I'm going to heal just so I can be, I don't know, to feed the ego, as opposed to understanding that this is a crisis of community. And there's no individual healing without communal healing, meaning I can do all, you know, as much work as I can, but some of these issues are relational. And I could be walking around like in my shiny healing process, but somebody comes up and dumps their, you know, their trauma and their projection of me. Well, that's going to send me into a crisis potentially. Yeah. I lost my train of thought. So there. (laughs) So that's that. (laughs) No, absolutely. And yeah, I think the process of healing is, first of all, it's not linear. You know, the amount of times I've heard, I thought it was over this. You know, I already healed that. Well, (laughs) there are layers. (laughs) Continual. Many, many layers. There's our stuff. You spoke to this. There's generational trauma. There's ancestral trauma. There's so many layers. And then even our own layers of whatever it is Mm -hmm. that we are experiencing. So, so many layers. And so I have compassion for the fact that for so many, it's challenging to drop into that and terrifying. And so many people won't for so many reasons, the resources, the space, even like really getting into our deep trauma. I've been doing a lot of that lately. And I'm just like, I wish I could take a month off of work for this. Like, this is some deep shit. My therapist was like, yeah. And that's why so many people won't be able to do that. You know, like won't be able to have that space to heal because they have three jobs and have kids that they're supporting. And so it's important to recognize that, you know, to recognize that there are very real systems in place Mm -hmm. that structurally that keep people from healing in some ways. At least that's what I see. Thank you so much for Brittany, because that's what I was trying to point to in terms of the community. You know, that's the community meaning our society. Exactly. The system prevents us. You know, when you, this fucking insane capitalist where, dude, people can't even get paid to stay home when they have COVID. Like, seriously. Right. I mean, it's inhumane. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's inhumane. And so, of course, again, that's part of it. It's like, wow, do I really have the bandwidth to deal with like my deepest trauma or I need to fucking pay the bills? <laughs> like, I, I can't afford to go that deep. I can't afford to completely heal. But what I will tell you people is that, yeah, I'm an entrepreneur. I run a business. I work as many hours a day as I used to meditate probably <laughs> on a regular basis. And yes, 
we can heal and function at the same time. Yes, it is possible. And part of the reason that it's possible is the methods that we use slowly, gently, the guidance and support that we have with the Lama and our other instructors. And, and I'm going to say the community that we've built. We are a community based on healing. And so we function like that. So in terms of like running the business, if someone's having a day where they're like, wow, I'm really like processing some deep wounding, I'm not going to be online today. But like, great go heal and we'll see you tomorrow. You know, let us know how you're feeling tomorrow. Or for students, like, you know, I'm really deep in, in my shit right now and I need some additional support. Great. Let's hop on the phone call. You know, let me see if I can support you, talk you through it. Right. Or I can't come to class today. Great. Watch the video later. So part of those of us who are in this field of holistic healing, who are creating communities of support, I'm going to invite us all, and this is something that we've implemented and it's been really helpful with the Institute, to implement a very clear anti-racist policy. Because the system that we suffer that you're pointing to, Brittany, is the system of white supremacy. It is a dehumanizing system. And unless we know, I'll say for, speak for myself, until I knew that I could opt out of that, I didn't think I had a choice. So I was running my business according to the system of white supremacy because I didn't know that I could opt out of that. And then I had some folks come in to give me some anti-racist training. They're like, oh, yeah, no, you, you don't have to structure your business like that. Yeah, no. <laughs> you can build in and, you know, you can operate, you can function from an anti-racist viewpoint, an anti-racist lens, right? And so that has been so transformational this past year, actively instituting on the ground level, a policy of operating as an anti-racist organization so that we can focus on meeting needs for support and healing and connection and community instead of all of these, like the white supremacist views of urgency and dogma and getting shit done and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Like there's some of that we still have to do, but that doesn't have to be the forefront. The forefront is the emphasis on community, connection, loving kindness, compassion, and supporting all of us together in healing. Yeah. I just today watched this like silent video of this guy with two lighters. Like he, he lights the lighters and they both work. Then he puts one lighter into a container of water and like just dumps water all over it, all over it. And then he tries to light this lighter. And uh, there's little bubbles of like all the weighted life things that could pop up and like this thing, this thing, this thing. And then he lights the lighter that's dry. And then he tries to light this lighter, but then he like turns it on and then lights it with his lighter. And it's mm -hmm. just like, it's the most like simplistic, beautiful idea of community that I've, I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just like, sometimes we have to share our light with people if they're feeling like they're weighed down by all of life's like issues and like obstacles. So I was just like, oh, this is, I love this idea. And it's so important because it is the greatest healer that we can do is within community with each other mm -hmm. and in that support system. Well, relationships are so important too. Mm -hmm. Like all relationships, romantic relationships, yes. like there's so much healing that's Oof. done in partnership and community and relationship. So yeah, something that I've learned, like this idea of community healing is a fairly new concept for me. And something that I've really pondered recently is like, I had to heal myself to the point where I could actually be healthy in community because of my trauma. And I, I'm sure that this is true for other people, but because of my trauma and my wounding, I wasn't available for building community. My poisons would have distorted that. And it did. My poisons distorted many relationships, right? So when we're talking about community, to me, it's both. Like we have to heal as individuals in order to get to the point where we're, we have the capacity to work through some of those interrelational issues. 
right? And so if I haven't built my capacity for healing on my own, when some of these triggers and things come up, I'm going to go running in the opposite direction or completely shut down or, you know, who knows what's going to happen. So to me, both are true. Cultivating that inner resilience and developing those inner resources so that when we are in community and stuff does arise, we're able to navigate those waters with more grace and more ease. Yes, 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 yes. And so how does pleasure play into this, Davey? Yeah, yeah. So I will say that I'm going to own that I coined the phrase, pleasure is medicine, way, way back. (laughs) Mine. It has been appropriated. (laughs) Talking about, you know, whiteness in the new age realm world, I've seen mine. And not just from Asian traditions, I've literally seen my work copied and pasted from my website on websites of very well-known sex experts and educators. So literal copy and paste. So appropriation is real. Appropriation from women of color that don't have as many access to resources is very real. And in terms of pleasure, pleasure is medicine is the story of my journey. That is the reason that I'm here today. That concept arose literally through moving through the most agonizing, profound, painful experiences of my life through sexual tantra, through pleasure, through orgasm, moving through that pain and being in the state of expanded awareness and witnessing, wow, this pleasure is dissolving my trauma at the same time as I'm in this field of expansive bliss. Pleasure is medicine. That's where they came from. That came from my fucking orgasm. <laughs> Davy's orgasm has spoken. <laughs> just, just imagine a, sw- a sweaty Davy just be like, <gasps> that's good. Pleasure is medicine. I'm writing that down. <laughs> give, me a, give me a second. We're better yet. You write that down. <laughs> Let me get some water. Let me get some water. <laughs> Yes. And I've been experiencing this lately. My healing lately has been quite heavy. (laughs) Uh, There's been a heaviness to it. And I was talking to my therapist and I was like, I said, this is heavy. Like healing is hard and healing is so so uncomfortable. And and he's like, for you right now, yes. Like it doesn't always, always have to be that. And it wasn't like in a shameful way, but it was this remembering of I think it's important to recognize that when we're healing trauma, there will most likely be times when we feel uncomfortable, right? So when it comes up, we're not like, oh shit, something's wrong. Let me stop what I'm doing to bring up this discomfort, this pain, this intensity. And so I always like to put that out there just so we're on the same page. Like this probably won't be butterflies and rainbows only, right? And There can be butterflies and rainbows as well. There can be this ecstatic, blissful experience of healing. And for myself, I forgot about that a little bit, right? I was getting this messaging to dance, to do, you know, Davy teaches an amazing tantric core pelvic movement dance. I've learned it from her. I teach it as well. But I was getting this message from my wisdom to practice movement. I'm like tried and true to the elemental meditations and to doing them regularly. But there was this like, okay, and sometimes they can be intense for your system. Why don't you move your body? You know, dance, like the sexual practices right now, I needed a pause on, but I was like, I just need to move. And there was this recently where I moved my body and oh my God, like I just felt like the aliveness and the connection and the pleasure. And I was still tapped in. I was still in a trance-like state. I was still like tapped into my wisdom and doing all of these things. And it wasn't intense, 
right? Both are possible. And I think we forget that. We're like, oh, here's healing. Time to rake myself over the coals. And it's like, no, like what working with you has taught me is that pleasure, it can be part of that experience. Well, and it has to. It, it's lube. I've considered pleasure lube. So, you know, so for instance, in a, in a non-sexual context, I love what you were bringing up, Brittany, about the movement and, and it instills joy, right? And particularly like with these sitting meditations, right? You're doing all this energy body yoga. You need to move that shit out or it's going to get stuck in your channels. So that's the beauty of movement. It's expressing, it's releasing, it's transforming, it's metabolizing energy in a way that's for many people joyful. I mean, we've been dancing as humans since we could stand on two legs, right? And who knows? My dog dances, right? (laughs) (laughs) But in terms of, you know, even out of a a non-sexual context of pleasure is medicine, like if I'm having a, a day of what I call heavy purification or heavy release or moving through something. It's like I check in. It's like, what would meet my needs for self-care right now? What would feel delicious right now? What would feel yummy and nurturing, you know? And so if we were in this deluge or overwhelmed by our trauma, knowingly or unknowingly, is really that point of self-connection of what would feel yummy to my body right now. Mm, And that's pleasure. And it's as easy as that. Accessing pleasure as medicine is as easy as asking ourselves what would feel yummy right now. Right. When we're in a moment of suffering, we're in a moment of overwhelm. I love that. Yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get off this call and do that right now. <laughs> yeah, with your divine, and it know? can be anything, right? Anything at all. I'm going to eat some chocolate right now. <laughs> As I was saying that, I mean, I'm thinking of my hot baths. Like for me, when I have really heavy days of release, it tends to show up in my body as physical pains. And so I'm like salt bath. That's going to feel salt bath with some rose oil. <laughs> like, yes. Taking baths. And a cup of tea. She's taking so many baths. So many baths. So many baths. (laughs) So many. So we want to shift gears a little bit before we close up with you. (laughs) And we want to do a little quick fire questions. Would you be down? I'm down. Okay. So we're going to go back and forth, ask you some little sexy, some little deep. And as briefly as you can give us an answer, if you need to expand, of course, there's space. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'll go first. Something that makes you belly laugh. Mm, my puppy. <laughs> totally. Yeah. If there was a superpower that you could have, what would you have? To have anything that I wish for to come true and also have the power to reverse any wish that I didn't <laughs> want. Genie power. Yeah. And be careful what you wish for, <laughs> yeah, though, right? Yeah, so you'd be, be like, oh, I didn't. Mm, no, that's not what I thought it was. Yeah, but specific. have the power to reverse it. That used to drive me crazy when I was a kid in the cartoons. It was yeah. like, well, if you do a wish and you don't like it, just reverse the wish. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. wish yeah. for a wish whenever you want a wish. Power. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, people. That's a great power. Get your shit together on this wish shit. <laughs> Okay, so here's the sexy one. If you could have a threesome with two famous people, they don't have to be like even real famous, right? They could be anyone, living or dead, right? Who would they be? So is a threesome with or without my husband? It's up to you. It could be then a foursome. Oh, it'd be a foursome. Okay, so it's whatever you want. I was like, do I get to, can I rotate them in? Oh, yes. (laughs) You can. Standing in the hall waiting until we're ready for the other one. Oh, yes, that's possible (laughs) in this, in my world, yes. Do it, do whatever. (laughs) Let me see. So, two people. Oh, okay. So, the two people that come to mind initially, I haven't thought about this much, but the two people that come to mind initially are Jesse Williams from Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And Angela Bassett. Oh, oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm just going by, I'm going with her. I'm going purely by looks. So I don't know, you know, even if like energetically that would be a match, but just like to look at the woman, that would be enough for me. 
Yeah. 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 Angela Bass. Oh, yeah. We were both like, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> what is your love language? Mm, my love language is absolutely acts of service. So is sex. It's true. <laughs> show me. <laughs> yes, exactly. Don't tell me, show me. <laughs> and I'm, tell me, tell me, tell me again. Tell me some more. You haven't told me in five minutes. <laughs> okay, so on the topic of pleasure, what is something, anything that brings you pleasure? Yeah, right now, talking with you. Mm. I'm going to say connecting with people that I love and admire is something that is really, really salient right now because I've been experiencing a lot of that and feeling really nourished by my spiritual family. Aw, thanks. <laughs> Just like the blush. We're blushing. <laughs> That's so beautiful. And agreed. Absolutely. Absolutely. We've been saying absolutely so much. Yeah. We're going to have to work Edited. that out of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry, guys. It's still new. Okay. Give us some, give us some grace. What is one thing you're struggling with? Mm, my self-image. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I want to do one more. Where is one wild place that you've had any kind of sexual experience or amazing place? You know, whatever. Well, I'm not going to go with a beautiful place. I, the first place that <laughs> came to mind, because this is just so awesome and so Detroit Davy, is on the side of the freeway. I think it was 275 or I-95. Maybe it's I-95. On the side of one of the Detroit freeways. In the, so they had like the grass medians there. And so I think it was like 19 or 20 coming home from some party or whatever. And my boyfriend and I just couldn't wait. And we pulled over yes. and Damn. had sex in the median on the side of the freeway in Detroit. And we got so eaten by mosquitoes. It was like, <laughs> <laughs> wait, did you get out of the car? Yeah, we oh, did. We got out of the car. It was in the grass. in the grass. Oh, I love that. Rumbling around in the grass. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> we needed room. We needed room to move around. And so, yeah, and we were so eaten up. and But it was actually good sex. So. <laughs> it all worked out. Where the, the mosquito bites yeah. on the ass. Pa passing, <laughs> passing traffic. Exactly. Very exactly. sexy. I, I get the appeal. I get it. So, Davey, what do you have going on right now? Is there anything you want to share or wrap before we close up? Yeah. So as I was sharing earlier, like we're so excited that we just got the notice that we've been approved by the International Institute of International Complementary Therapists, which is another like boost for our graduates. So we pursue these accreditations, not just for us, but for you guys, for the people who graduate from our school so that you have a valid, credible, you know, diploma certificate that you're getting. So very excited about that. Um, and what that means for you who are listening, it means that if you're interested in being certified under the umbrella of our institute, it means that even while you're a student in training, you can get business insurance, you can get membership with this organization that will allow you to have affordable business insurance to cover you while you're in training, which is remarkable in the field of Tantra and sexology. That's one of the, the obstacles is that insurers typically don't want to insure people who deal in the realm of sexuality, even though we're not offering sex sessions, we're teaching people about sexuality, but still insurance providers are squeamish about it. So being able to offer this, you know, make this accessible to not just our graduates, but our students is phenomenal. So our certification program happens in two phases. And the first phase, Tantra Mastery, is open for registration. Now you can go to AuthenticTantra.com and learn more about it. And registration for phase two opens in May. So you have to complete phase one to be eligible for phase two. So get on it. Get on it. And <laughs> spoken from someone who has been through it. It's amazing and worth the time and energy. And this 
was worth the time and energy. Oh, thank you so much, Jamie. I, yeah, this is really, really good. Thank this you. is great. Yeah, thank you for having such a impactful conversation and important conversation to be having. And yeah, you're such an inspiration. Thank you. It's an yeah. honor. And please invite me back. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for the vulnerability and, and sharing your light. I really appreciate it. What a blessing of a conversation that was. What a gift. Yeah. Like, I, and it also, just in terms of, I don't know what that brought up for me while, while I was in it. And like, I wasn't expecting to, you know, be speaking so action based in, in that yeah. moment. And uh, what did it bring up for you? Well, just in terms of my own internalized, you know, supremacy. Like, yeah. How that has popped up in my life consistently. And also just dismantling that and unpacking that. And just looking at it in the face and being like, I see you. <laughs> like, I see what this is. And you deserve attention. And it can still be compassionate and loving attention. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's things that were like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. Why is this? Yeah. Speaking from a white woman, I mean, that that whole idea of white fragility is that idea that it's like, oh, I look at this stuff because that means I'm, especially in, in spiritual communities, in my experience, this is my experience, mm-hmm. in spiritual communities, a lot of times it's even harder because there's so much work to yep. be <laughs> so well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and And then there's like, oh, there's a lot of blind spots that I didn't notice. And, you know, there's resistance and guilt. Oh my God. So, so much. <laughs> it's really easy just to stop there. Yeah. And like we were talking about on this podcast, you need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And part of the healing journey is absolutely unpacking and dismantling white supremacy within ourselves. Wow. So important. And also just hearing you speak and being mindful about these things is really important to me. Like yeah. really, really important to me. I can't stress that enough. A part of me is like, I don't want to give you a pat on the back for doing no, what you should be doing, but, well, I, but, I, but but I still want to be vocal about weight that carries for me uh, yeah. in my experience and how I'm perceived, you know, internally and outside in the Absolutely. world that, that we currently occupy. So thank you for having great questions and being able to have this conversation. Thank you for thanking me because <laughs> I, I don't feel like it's a pat on the back. I think it's an acknowledgement of how it you feel being witnessed in that way. And my work is to not take that and be like, oh, look at me. I'm a good, I'm a good, good woke white person. <laughs> Done. <laughs> like, and I just, I, I just have zero time for <laughs> zero intolerance for having to deal with that anymore, like in my life. And like, that's your right. I want to surround myself with people who get it and who are able to be like, yes, hmm, let me hold myself accountable in this way, in the space of like allyship. It's like, what are you actively doing? Mm-hmm. to keep this behavior from happening, you know, with yeah. your kids or like, you know, your nieces and nephews or within your family. I mean, it's really important that these conversations are happening not only between black and white, but like between white and white. <laughs> Being yeah. Able to be, like, check people, like, where's this coming from? Like, where's mm-hmm. the dialogue popping up? And yeah, it's really important work to be doing across the it board. Is. It absolutely is. And those listening that might have some feels, <laughs> Even from this episode, I was going to say this session, <laughs> like I was working with clients mm-hmm. uh, from this session and from what we were just talking about just now, in my experience, it's just, it's part of it. This brings up our shit. You got to be with all of it. All of it. That's what I've been really working with my healing. All the parts, every piece, every piece that comes up, the piece that I'm like, whoa, who are you? Why are you here? Oh God, really? You're here again? Mm-hmm. Like seriously, it's just for me kind of teasing it apart and seeing these different pieces and letting them come up and loving the shit out of them. No matter what. Is the healing. 
It's a journey. It sure is. Thank you for being here with us on our journey. Thank you so much for listening. Follow Davy at Authentic Tantra on Instagram and Twitter. And check out her website at AuthenticTantra.com. Follow me at Sexually Underscore Liberated on Instagram. And check out my website at BrittanyPaulCastro.com. You can follow me at Nick Anthony Photo on Instagram. You also can check out my website at NickAnthony.com. Editing by Audionauts and music by Greta Hopper. Please leave a five-star review on iTunes and share this podcast. Help us spread the kitchen table love. Until next time.